powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello! Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Please sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. This episode is brought to you today by the fine folks at BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. So before we jump into this episode, I want to say a huge thank you to my last guest, the legendary Julian Glover. What an incredible episode. The feedback was overwhelming. If you've not had a chance to hear our in-depth interview, and I do mean in-depth, I strongly encourage you to check it out after the conclusion of this episode. And Julian, thank you again from the bottom of my heart, sir. That was a true honor. So welcome to episode 170, and we have a great episode lined up for you today. We have on the show Amy Gravino, an autism sexuality advocate, professional speaker, and autism relationship coach. Amy will be discussing her speaking roles, including her TED Talks, speaking at the United Nations, her appearances in documentaries and films, and explaining her work at Rutgers University. Amy is an old friend of mine and one of the nicest ladies you could ever want to meet. So let's get her out here, Duval Nation. Please welcome to the show, calling in today from our hotel room while on the road speaking in Utah, autism sexuality advocate, Amy Gravino. Amy, hello. Welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. How is the weather out by you today? Uh, it's actually pretty warm out. It was cooler this morning, and now it's kind of heated up a bit in the, in the afternoon sun. Nice. So with the pandemic coming to an end, how was it for you to navigate the COVID-19 world? Oh, well, that's a complex question. It's hard to know where to begin. I think, you know, with the pandemic, it, it was hard to even reckon with the fact that it was a new world at first. We all, I think, thought it was going to be over within a matter of weeks. I don't think anyone realized just how profoundly uh, COVID was going to change our lives. I just remember, you know, when the initial waves sort of happened, it felt to me like a tsunami almost, that we were all just sort of engulfed underwater. And, you know, then the, the waves receded and we could see the damage. We could see all the water that was still laying around and it needed to be bailed out. And I think, you know, three years later, almost or so, we're still bailing out the water. I don't think we've recovered uh, fully yet. I know that a lot of things changed with being a professional public speaker. All my, you know, engagements were canceled in 2020, essentially. And so I had to pivot to doing virtual presentations, which I hadn't done a whole lot of up to that point. You know, discovering Zoom was a whole other adventure and learning how to deal with a virtual audience, an audience that you're not in the same room with. And as a speaker, you know, you, you want to feel the, the energy of the people in the room. That's what you feed off of. So it, it was very difficult to, to not have that, you know, with Zoom and all. But, you know, I am on the autism spectrum. And so for me, my perspective is always thinking about how COVID changed the lives of autistic people, children, adults, and their families. And, 
how it impacted so many people um, in terms of services that were available to them, services that were not available virtually, and how people coped with the disruption of that, how many are still trying to come back from that, how it's you know affected people's developments and things like that, people, whatever age they might be at. And my concern is that we've left behind some people. You know, we've had this rush to get back to normal. And I think in the process, we've left behind people who have disabilities, especially people who are who have been more affected uh, by the pandemic. And we, we had an opportunity, you know, to, to build a better world. I really was kind of hopeful, actually, that that would be the case. And I mean, I still I'm, I'm, I call myself a failed pessimist because I always try to look for the, the positive in things. And so I have hope that there is still the potential for us to build a better world. But I don't think we've gotten there yet. And we still have a way to go. All right. So every journey has a beginning. Where were you born and what was it like to grow up there? I was born in Port Jefferson, New York, which is a little town on Long Island, you know, just uh, like 60 miles or so east of New York City. And I, it was it's a small town. It was about, you know, 7,000 people in the town. So I had 88 kids in my class at school and I knew most of them from kindergarten. And you hear people sometimes opine about the virtues of small towns. You know, I, I always think of the Andy Griffith show, you know, Mayberry and all that stuff. Well, the real world is not Mayberry. And in the real world, a small town can be a difficult place to grow up in, especially if you don't fit it, especially if you're someone, you know, who is different. And then the isolation that you end up experiencing because of that extends to your family as well. You know, my parents, they grew up in New Jersey and they grew up very close to their immediate family, like cousins and things like that. All of my cousins were, were in New Jersey growing up, or I have an aunt also who lived in California. So I didn't have immediate family anywhere near me in, in that same sense. So it really didn't feel like I had a support network. I was very you know lonely, like I say, and I don't have that connection to a community the way that a lot of people do. I, I mourn for that fact in a lot of ways because I hear people talk about, especially I think this might be more of a UK thing because I'm thinking of like Wales and like little teeny weeny towns in Wales. And I just never had that. Um, I didn't have a community that embraced me. I didn't have a place in that community. So when I go home now, you know, to 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 visit my parents, it's not like I have an old gang from high school to hang out with. I don't. So it's just it's mostly me with them and their friends who are all like around their age, which I'm cool with. I'm down with the 70 year olds. But, you know, it's it's a weird thing to not have any friend of your own age, I guess. So you mentioned earlier, like I said, that you are on the autistic spectrum. And there was a word that I learned very recently, neurodivergent. Will yes. you please educate my audience as to what exactly that is? Sure. Well, the idea of neurodiversity, which was coined, a term that was coined by Judy Singer, it's the idea that there are all different types of brains in the world that are need that make up, you know, the, the, the spectrum of humanity that contribute to uh, the world at large, how we think, how we interact with the world, how we contribute to the world. And so the world is neurodiverse, but only some people are neurodivergent. That is that they diverge from the neurotypical norm. So neurodivergent minds consist of autism, ADHD, OCD, a number of other, of other bipolar disorder, and, and even, you know, we, there are mental illnesses that would, would be considered a form of, of neurodivergence, you know, schizophrenia and dissociative identity disorder. But, but there's a lot of contentions and controversies in there, but I just wanted to mention it for the sake of completism. But yes, so neuro neurodiversity at its core tends to be misunderstood when we're talking about the autistic community specifically. It's not saying that autism is not a disability. I want that clear because autism absolutely is a disability. It's to me, neurodiversity is something that allows autistic people to not hate themselves. 
allows us to say, this is who I am. This is the way that I was born. And I don't have to feel that I'm broken because of it. I don't have to hate myself because of it. So it's just a way of kind of reframing our ideas around disability and, and autism and looking at not just as a, a series of deficits, but looking at people's strengths, looking at people as whole human beings, basically, who have challenges and strengths alike. How hard was it for you growing up in a world that didn't understand autism like we do today? It, well, I, I tell you, I'm not convinced that we do understand autism so great today. I think we've come a long way. Absolutely. Very, very far, but we still have a ways to go. But when I was growing up, yes, absolutely. There was not a kind of a national dialogue on autism as exists now. That was something you know that didn't come about until years after I was diagnosed. So I was diagnosed in 1994. And that was the same year that Asperger's syndrome was just added to the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is used by psychologists to diagnose a lot of disabilities and developmental disorders. So Asperger's syndrome was just added then and nobody, you know, nobody kind of under, understood anything. In the more recent revision, now everything is kind of subsumed under autism level one, autism level two, autism level three. So there's no more Asperger's syndrome diagnosis. There's no Rett syndrome diagnosis, which was a separate diagnosis. I think Fragile X may, I don't know if Fragile X is under the heading of, of, of autism or not, but they changed a lot. But essentially, people had no idea. And I, I felt very misunderstood. To this day, the effects of that are that I, I fear being misunderstood because I've seen what happens as a result of that. And I've had to be extremely clear and articulate about things because of, of that fear of misunderstanding. Because when someone you know misunderstands you, I think when you're neurotypical, they're still willing to give you the benefit of the doubt in some way. And there's not this fallout that that kind of occurs, whether even if it's a silent fallout. But when you're on the autism spectrum, you don't get that same benefit of the doubt when you're misunderstood. There's kind of a distrust, a mistrust that that exists in you. You only get so many chances. You know, we let neurotypical people make mistakes. We don't let autistic people make mistakes. And I don't understand why that is. Um, and so, so yeah, I lived in fear of making a mistake. I lived in fear of being misunderstood. And it was, it was very, very lonely. I felt very much like an alien on this earth, you know, and a civilization that wasn't built for me, that didn't understand me. And it was painful. It was just very, very painful. When did you get your higher education? So I, I had my bachelor's degree in English, which I got at King's College in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And I have a master's degree in applied behavior analysis, which I got at Caldwell University in Caldwell, New Jersey. How hard was it to get that education? Was it you got you get through college pretty quickly? I did. I got through college in four years. I, you know, it was amazing. I, I have such a love of academia and learning, which was kind of extinguished when I was in high school because of all my social challenges. And then in college, you know, all that went away sort of. I mean, it's not that all my challenges disappeared completely, but I was able to rediscover that love of learning. Um, and, and in grad school, especially because you don't have the social kind of context and then situations that you have in, in, in undergraduate, you know, when you're living in a dorm and things like that. So grad school, I could just fully embrace the academia without any concern about the social stuff. And yeah, I got through, you know, I mean, everybody, the, the so-called experts told my parents that I wouldn't graduate high school, let alone go to college. And I proved them wrong. And then, you know, I got this master's degree and, and I, I mean, a master's degree is a whole other thing because you have a thesis that you have to write and that I, I think I still have a little PS, PTSD from that. But yeah, I really enjoyed graduate work much, much more than, you know, high school or anything. That makes sense. All right. So what inspired you to become an advocate for the autistic community? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I, I don't know if anybody specifically sets out to become an advocate. It's sort of that I, I began by advocating for myself and telling my story. I've been speaking at conferences since I was 14 years old. 
And I, I've been professionally speaking since about 2006. So about 16 years now, I'd say, more or less. And it, it started out, you know, just wanting to be able to get my voice heard, feeling very unheard by my classmates, by my teachers. And so being able to be on even a team panel at the conferences on Long Island for an organization that my mother was on the board of meant a great deal to me. And around 2005, I was filmed for a documentary called Normal People Scare Me, which was filmed by a young man on the autism spectrum and his mother. And uh, it was the first time anyone had wanted to put my voice on a platform uh, in that way. And they took this film all over the world. They screened it at, in, in Qatar, in all kinds of different countries. And they told me that you know, there were over 65 people on the spectrum interviewed for this. And other than the young man himself, the person people asked about the most was me. I said, me? You know, I had never fathomed that that would be the case. And it was the first time that I began to realize that uh, my voice had the power to help people. And so uh, as I thought about what I wanted to do with my life, my initial plan was to be a writer, to write poetry in a college in the Italian Alps, which is why I have an undergrad degree in English. Hmm. And But the thing about writing poetry in a college in the Italian Alps is that you do it alone. you know. And, and that was the extent of the value I thought I had to society. I felt I had nothing to contribute. Although, of course, you know, we as human beings, autistic people have value just by being who we are, whether or not we contribute to capitalism or have jobs that involve making money. But be that as it may, I didn't think I had something really to to offer the world. And so when I, you know, I, I went to graduate school, that began to set me on, on a path more so. I, I had been speaking before that. I had continued my speaking. Um, and then it's just grown and grown as, as time has gone on. And really my passion, you know, is autism and sexuality. That's what I present on the most of all the topics that I talk about. And the kind of goal behind, you know, being an advocate, or I, I call myself an autism sexuality advocate, is to spare people from going through the pain that I went through. If, if I can even help one person avoid that, then I, I consider myself a success. Hmm. Now, Amy, you joined the ranks of a very select group of guests who have been on my show who have had their own TED Talks. <laughs> and one in particular are called Why Autism is Sexier Than You Think. For my listeners, can you tell them about that talk and how best to find it? So yes, I gave that TED Talk in 2016 for TEDx Jersey City, and it is essentially about autism and sexuality. I talk about my journey a little bit. I talk about, you know, kind of why we have to have these conversations around autism and sexuality. It's not as formalized as the presentations that I give professionally. It's because both TED Talks follow a sort of different structure. It's more narrative-based. Um, so I do, I, I wrote out my speech essentially because I knew if I tried to memorize it, I would just be standing up there looking like I was trying to memorize it. So I do have the papers in my hand, but if you go to YouTube and just type in Amy Gravino TEDx, it'll come right up. Now, besides obviously the TED Talks, you have spoken, and you're the first guest now who's ever done this. You have spoken at the UN twice, United Nations. What is it like to speak in such a hallowed place? And what were the speeches about? So I spoke at the United Nations for World Autism Awareness Day in 2011 and 2018. That was a day that was created to mark Autism Awareness Month, which is April. So autism, World Autism Awareness Day is typically the first Tuesday, I believe, or it's, it's a, um, I think it's usually the second of April because April 1st is April Fool's Day and you don't want to have any kind of day like that on a day like that. Um, and I, I became, I can't remember how I became involved in the one in 2011. I think I was invited to be on this panel and it was amazing. It was, you know, obviously a huge kind of world stage to be on, which I hadn't been on prior to that point. But, what, you know, any nervousness I felt was kind of disappeared once I was up there. 
because once I'm finally up and doing what I love to do, like I'm fine, you know, everything else sort of just fades away. And it was, it was just wonderful to be able to share my experiences and my perspective and stories with people. Same for 2018. That was another panel as well. And I mean, the one for 2011, the other people on the panel were the director of the mental health division of the World Health Organization, the chair of the autism committee for Bangladesh, who's also the daughter of the prime minister of Bangladesh, and the, the chief science officer of Autism Speaks, who was sponsoring the panel at that time, and then me. So I, I kind of would look at the other people like, what am I doing here? But uh, I, I had a reason to be there, right? The whole point was that I wasn't like them. The whole point is that I'm not one of them. So that, you know, was a really wonderful thing to be able to be up there as that was. And then now, since then, there have been so many other autistic people who have spoken uh, at that day and had their voice heard. Um, and also those videos are on YouTube as well. If you go to YouTube and, and look up Amy Gravino, United Nations, both videos are available to watch. Looks good on a resume, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So besides the UN and the TED Talks, you are a traveling professional speaker. What sort of lectures, what sort of workshops do you give your attendees? So I give, I mean, depends on what the event requires. I give keynote uh, sessions, which are you know kind of the chief speech and presentation of a conference. I give breakout sessions. I've done panels. I've done symposia uh, where I've been kind of the discussant for a symposium. And what's really neat is, is, I mean, of course, primarily my topic is on autism and sexuality. That's what I've kind of become known for. But uh, at a conference that I just recently uh, spoke at, I did three different talks and none of them were on sexuality. And they were all on ethics and they were on social validity and autism and, and, and ABA. And so I've, I'm grateful that I've actually had the opportunity to speak on other topics than, than just sexual, although I love talking about sexuality. I mean, I absolutely do. But to be able to have that chance to do that is really meaningful to me. But including sexuality, other, the other topics that I tend to cover most frequently are um, entering into adulthood with autism. So there's still kind of a prominent image of autism as a childhood condition, but there are so many autistic adults in the world and all the autistic children who exist now are going to become autistic adults. So we need to be talking more about how we prepare people on the spectrum for adulthood. So that's that talk. And then the other talk I give is called Freshman Disorientation, which is about autism in college and the challenges uh, that I faced in high school versus in college and how we can prepare people on the autism spectrum uh, for transitioning to college life. Now, you're currently a relationship coach working at Rutgers Center for Adult Autism Services. What kind of lessons are you implementing to help autistic people have better, more fruitful relationships? So that is right. Yes, I work as a relationship coach in the RCAS, and it's really individualized. I haven't done kind of group sessions, really. I've been working individually with the participants to help them with the goals that they want to achieve related to either relationships or friendships. Um, you know, everybody's in a different place kind of developmentally or uh, in terms of interest, what they're interested in. So it, it can't ever be one size fits all, really. Um, so it's been kind of an individualized approach where I work in tandem with the BCBAs to kind of help the participants with, with these skills and with various issues that arise uh, related to this area. I also am currently working on a sex ed curriculum called the ASK, the Adult Autism and Sexuality Kit. I received a $25,000 grant last year, my first as a principal investigator, to develop this curriculum. And after viewing relevant stakeholders, we've centered on healthy relationships and personal safety as the two topics that we really want to focus on for this. And what makes this curriculum sort of different from other curriculums, curricula that exists is that we are we are having autistic people aid in the feedback of this process. So it's not meant to be like, here's how you do this in a neurotypical way. 
we want to incorporate autistic communication into this. We want this to be a living document that's informed by the population we're serving. Um, and when I say we, my collaborators, Dr. Vanessa Ball, who is uh, the director of the Psychological Services Clinic in the RCAS. So she's been a tremendous help uh, with this as well. I'm very excited about how it's going to hopefully come out. Okay, Deval Nation, we're going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we will be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Amy Gravino. May I suggest you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long deep breaths. You know that's right, Clouseau style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Please give your attention to a few friends of my show, and we will be right back. Hey there, friends. It's Local Neighborhood Baby, host of Stressed, Depressed, and Anxious Podcast, with new episodes every Monday. Go to the website, stresseddepressedanxious.com. There you'll find links to all of your favorite listening platforms so you can download and subscribe. The thing is, mental health illnesses make us feel so alone, like we're on this weird island all by ourselves, screaming at the top of our lungs with nobody around to hear us. But the real truth is, you're not alone. I'm there too. On the podcast, I'll take you through all the intricate, intimate details of my very up life we'll be laughing about it crying about it and everything in between because the truth is you know what it is a beautiful day in the neighborhood we just can't see it sometimes but i'm gonna be right there with you in the dark so go to the website stressdepressedanxious.com download subscribe interact come join the fun i'm here you're not alone Hello Duval Nation, Derek Duval here. Mental health is not only a top priority in my life, but it should be in yours too. As a combat military veteran, I have seen what untreated mental health looks like, which is why I've been using a therapist for well over a decade. Seeing a trusted therapist has helped me reconcile life events and other important things I've been witness to since returning home from the service and has changed my life for the better in many ways. Which is why going forward I am pleased to announce that BetterHelp will be sponsoring The Derek Duval Show. BetterHelp is the world's first therapy service and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then, you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you can expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you. More scheduling flexibility and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's betterhelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. Hey there, this is Chad from Larkin, and you are listening to The Derek Duvall Show. You can find all of our releases on No Records out of Long Beach, that's K-N-O-W, or you can find them on almost all streaming services, and we hope to see you around down the next gig. Cheers. Oh, cunt and his comrades like lions at bay, from South Dublin Union, poor death and despair. But what was there often the invaders men saw? All the dead khaki soldiers in Erin go bra. 
Teachers, do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things? Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget cuts! Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach on Warriors. We've got this. Welcome to Wine Chats with Bildo and Lindalyn. My name is Billy Milovanovich, aka Bildo. My name is Lindsay Kirkwood, also known as Lindalyn. And this is our offensively funny podcast about drinking wine and chatting life. Some of our previous topics include conspiracy theories. I know somebody that thinks the world's flat. What? Like a real person? Yes. Body ailments. I'm going to go from toes up because I have a lot. <laughs> no, seriously, you laugh, but I have so many body ailments. This is what ailments. happens with age, guys. And I know. And orgasms. I'm a little bit frustrated and it just hasn't been happening. I, I'm trying, Henry's trying, we're all trying, but when orgasming is good, it's good. Basically, we talk about all the things that you would generally talk about over wine with your girlfriends. New episodes out each Monday. Chat, Chat soon. Hey, it's Michelle Fabre and you're listening to The Derek Duval Show. You can hear my brand new single, I'm All That I Need, on all streaming platforms right now. Hello everyone, this is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, a veteran's journey from homeless to hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 170 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with autism sexuality advocate, Amy Gravino. You mentioned it earlier, um, very briefly, but I want to bring it up is, you know, what was it like to appear in the documentaries, Normal People Scare Me and Normal People Scare Me Too? Um, I mean, it was extraordinary. It was, you know, I never expected to be in, in a film of any kind, but let alone one that was produced by Joey Trolda, who, you know, is a sweet, sweet man who I've met on multiple occasions. And um, he actually runs a film camp in New Jersey for uh, in, individuals on the spectrum, but neurotypicals as well. And so he was kind of, you know, the, the brains behind a lot of this. And he interviewed me for the, the sequel, Normal People Scare Me Too. Um, and it was incredible to revisit it again. And to there was only a handful of us who were brought back from the sequel, as, as far as I know. So to revisit that again and talk about the impact of the film was 
was really extraordinary. When I look back at the first one, you know, I, I look, I mean, I was a senior in college, but I, it's not just that I look young. It's that I look small in terms of that. I was almost shrinking into the, into the chair I was sitting on this oversized chair. And I feel like, you know, who I was, wasn't fully developed yet. I was still just, you know, not confident yet um, in the way that I've, I think become since then. So to, to, you know, come back and film the sequel was a great thing for me to be able to see how far I'd come since then. It's amazing you say that because the first time I met you, you, you were very t- very shy, very timid person. And I'm having this conversation with you. You're confident. You're you're expressing your opinions with force and with you know authority. And I'm absolutely in awe right now of, of this conversation we're having. So it's night and day from the first time I met you. So this is amazing. So flipping the script, uh, you have won awards for your writing. You've been featured in Spectrum, Reader's Digest, and such. And you mentioned earlier you would love to write poetry. What do you enjoy about writing so much? Well, I, I did write poetry when I was a kid. I started off writing poems when I was 10, 11 years old. And writing for me has always been an outlet from the world. It's always been the place where I could express myself when I couldn't express myself verbally out loud. Um, writing just became the way that I was able to kind of deal with the world, deal with both the bullying I was experiencing and then the changes that I was going through as I was growing up. Um, I, you know, I began writing fan fiction at a young age and um, specifically erotic fiction, which was my way of kind of accessing my sexuality because I didn't have other outlets as a person on the spectrum. And um, writing that was a tremendous kind of gateway to learning more about myself and, 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 and navigating all these things that I didn't have any other outlets for, didn't have any other place to learn them from. And writing, I started, you know, writing became something that I was good at. And I was told that I was good at it. And, you know, I felt like I wasn't good at anything else. So it was something I sort of hung on to. And I was afraid to get criticism for my writing for a long time. I was afraid that it would mean that I was somehow bad at it. And I was like, no, this is the one thing I'm good at. Don't take this away from me. But I, I welcome and appreciate constructive criticism now. I think that it's really important and it helps you to become a better writer ultimately. And for me, it's, you know, that I think my writing has helped people. Again, that's kind of what's been uh, so meaningful is that I've had people say to me how much something I wrote meant to them, how they saw themselves in it, they felt seen and heard. Uh, and that's, again, that, that's all I could ever hope for. That's all I could ever ask for. So I'm writing a book now called The Naughty Audi, which is a memoir of my experiences with dating as a woman on the spectrum. And that I hope will help more people also. Uh, it's my first book, but I'm so happy to have been able to have the opportunities I've had to write and to have my words out there helping people. How far has that book come along? I have about four and a half, five chapters out of 10 done. So I do have an outline and all that. It's just finding the time to sit down and finish. It's been very, very hard with my schedule and with everything going on. So Fair enough. Okay. Tell me listen about your role in the film, In a Different Key, the story of autism. Sure. So um, In a Different Key, for those who may not know, was originally a book written by John Donovan and Karen Zucker. It's a New York Times bestselling book, and I believe it was a Pulitzer finalist. And they sought out and kind of spoke with Donald Triplett, who was the first person ever diagnosed with autism. And they decided to turn it into a film a couple of years ago. And I was asked to be interviewed uh, in the film. And so they they kind of were highlighting Donald. And they also had Karen Zucker's son, Mickey, who is autistic and lives in Arizona at a place called First Place. So they interviewed a bunch of other people on the spectrum as well to cover kind of the, such a, it's such a wide breadth, the spectrum. So they wanted to have voices represented from, from all over and um, try to cover as much as they could. And I was interviewed in New Jersey uh, for it, and I was very happy to be uh, interviewed for it. 
It had its premiere last December on PBS and it was available on streaming. I don't know if it still is, but it had been on there. And I got to, uh, I got to do an interview on NPR about it with uh, John. And I, it's been incredible um, to you know, see the, the reach that it's had, how it's could, because Indifferent Key was really created for uh, what we would call the civilians. So the people who don't know anything about autism, it's for, you know, the people who, who don't have an autistic family member or who don't you know, have any connection to autism. And that's kind of the whole point and purpose behind it. And I think it has had an incredible effect. And I've got to do a lot of uh, speaking engagements involved with that panels after screenings of the film. So I'm really happy to see the reach that it's had. All right. Okay. So what's next for Amy? Oh, what's next for Amy? Uh, maybe taking it easy a little bit in the summer since I, act, well, actually I have to worry about moving because uh, um, my house where I live was bought by some new folks and they're, they're wanting to move in. So I'm currently looking at moving and figuring out that situation. And uh, hopefully once that is settled, I know I have more speaking engagements coming up um, for the fall. There's a lot of things that were, were being talked about right now. And yeah, just continuing the work on, on the ASK, the sex ed curriculum and, hoping to continue doing everything that I'm doing. All right. So as we enter the final phase of this interview, I always like to ask one fun question. Amy, what do you like to do for fun? What do you like to do to relax? Well, one of those things I probably can't say on the air, so I'll skip that one. But the other <laughs> one, I, I love to cook. I cook all the time. Cooking is my, my Zen activity. It's how I relax. It's how I process things when I've had a tough day. So cooking is, is a huge, huge one. Um, I've become just so passionate about it. And Cooking is connected to autism too, in, in certain ways, because of it's helped me overcome a lot of sensory challenges I've had with food, with textures and tastes and smells and things. I also love to write, obviously, as we talked about. I, I am a writer. Yeah, just spending time with friends and family, you know, just the the good stuff like that. Um, going to shows. I, I I'm a big fan of the monkeys. I used to go see the monkeys a lot when they were on tour together and solo. Um, almost all of them are dead now, so that's kind of not happening anymore. <laughs> but uh, yeah. You know, I just, I'm so busy a lot of the time because I don't always get to do relaxing things, but traveling as well. I love to travel if, when I can for, you know, to be on a vacation, which I also don't get to do very often. Right. But. Right on. All right. So what would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures online? Sure. So you, well, you can find me on my website at amygravino.com. I'm also on Twitter uh, at amygravino, on Instagram uh, at amy.gravino, and I'm on LinkedIn um, as well. So you can find me on all those places. Okay. Amy, I end my interviews with my favorite question. And the question is this. If the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of Earth? Oh, the one thing I'd want to say to the people of Earth, uh, respect autistic people. Respect, embrace, accept, and be accomplices to autistic people. We don't need allies. We need accomplices. We need you to invest in us, in our well-being, in our success, and you will see how much that will benefit everyone, not just us. All right. Amy, my old friend, this has been a real pleasure, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your, I know, incredibly busy schedule to come on here and speak with me. This has been an absolute blessing. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Derek. And just like that, Deval Nation, we come to the end of episode 170. I want to thank my old friend Amy for taking the time out of her incredibly busy schedule to speak with me. She is a true delight to speak with, and I hope our paths on this show cross again down the road. 
Okay, tune again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. I have a really good one coming up in a few days. So be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for that episode to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask you, the listener, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have. So please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up to date for when new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. We are still enjoying our partnership with the amazing Tee Public. The Derek Duvall Show is a great little store on there with everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have some really fun t-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Go to the banner on the left that says Merch. Click that, and you will be taken to our store on Tee Public. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here on the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, what are you doing to manage your mental health this weekend? I plan on taking my husky for a walk when the sun goes down so that he and I can get some fresh air and some much-needed exercise. I strongly advise you to do the same because fresh air can help raise oxygen levels in your brain, which increases serotonin levels. Science, people. Science. Nostar, God bless, and see you next time. Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.